0: Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between, we're not two bots parading as humans, we're actually humans, the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist Will Page, that's him. And we really like to dig in on the inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really work. And this week, we catch up with a subject that is near and dear to our hearts, but in a distanced kind of way, that is the business of podcasting. Will is fresh from two days at the industry's leading event in London, where thousands of people got together to figure out, can they actually make money from podcasting? And I want his thoughts about whether this is a hobby, a business, or something in between. More in a minute. Well, aside from the fact that we care about podcasting and there were 4,000 or so other people in London this last week who cared about podcasting, why should our audience care about these crazy things called podcasts and whether or not they're a real commercial enterprise? I think skin
3: in the game is a short answer. I think our audience will have an interest in podcasting. Many of our audience will be wanting to do, or at least exploring doing podcasts themselves. I mean, the barriers to entry in this field are are effectively zero. The topic of exposing financial misdemeanors can be done by ourselves. It can be done by our audience. Let the consumer become the new broadcaster. But also just a quick fact check there. There was 4,000 people at the podcast show last year. It was over 6,000 this year. So clearly the business of podcasts is booming and the business of podcast conferences is booming too. So I think over the course of this conversation, Richard, we've got a lot to share the audience about where they might want to go with their podcast ambitions as well.
0: Yeah, and there were so many interesting strands to pull out, whether podcasting is the future of journalism, in a way, in being able to speak those stories that so few of us get to read because the circulations of the leading newspapers have fallen off so much, uh, about all the large players that are jockeying for position in the market. Mm -hmm. As you point out in your own book, when things slow down and they move from herbivores farming their own patch, to carnivores trying to kill each other off. Absolutely. There are so many strands to pull out. What are the top couple of things you want to start off with in terms of your big observations about this business of podcasting?
3: Well, let's start with the conference itself. I couldn't help but notice the number of Americans that came to London for the podcast show. And we're talking here literally about thousands of Americans made the trip. Now, America has their own podcast conference circuit. They have this huge event called Podcast Movement. They were all saying the same thing. The atmosphere in London was one where you don't find in America and they're not going back to U.S. conferences. They want to build up their podcast network in London. So a hat tip to this city is we seem to have the global HQ of podcast gatherings. But but can I I call
0: time out on that for a second? Because I don't see the Americans coming over when the weather is utterly miserable in November or February. But when it's the glorious (laughs) May bank holiday weekend week, they're all over here in droves. I know. Maybe
3: there's something to do with the timing there. And maybe if we rescheduled next year's podcast conference to coincide with Wimbledon, there'll be even more Americans coming over for Absolutely. It. But yeah, that was a pleasant surprise. It's a pleasant surprise to see so many Americans loving a two-day event in London. One yeah. other thing, just on the conference, before we get into the detail, I want to stress this to our audience. Why these podcast conferences work so well is that most conferences drive me insane. Because a bunch of douchebags, as you call them, Richard, up on stage who digress from the conversational topic matter and overhaul the microphone and run the clock out. And they just, they should never be on a stage in the first place. Whereas podcast conferences are a gathering of people who are skilled in the art of conversation, like a good cell. And when you have a conference with full of people who can have a conversation, you know what happens? It makes for a great conversation. So that was the other thing I picked up just anecdotally for the event. But I think to like the big meaty topics of the conference I think the RSS feed was obviously one, should podcasts be open or closed? And we can get into that one. But it was interesting to see that YouTube seemed to do a role reversal on their opening keynote. And what I was rumored, and I can only speculate on the rumors I've heard, was they were going to announce that you can get to the RSS feed for YouTube podcasts, but they're going to take away your adverts and put their adverts on in your place. So we're going to be open for distribution, but closed for advertising. And what I heard was that announcement was scuppered at the last minute and then they just did a sort of very generic, here's YouTube podcast ambition. But it shows, I think with this, just a stress for audience, when we say RSS feed, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a way that you can send podcasts everywhere. You could build a podcast platform tomorrow. and You'd have this podcast coming down your channel and to your audience as well. But it's just, I think that was interesting that one of the big players in the market was going to play open on distribution. So we're open to RSS distribution for podcasts. But close net ads. I think that highlights the tension point there, Rich.
0: But if I want to step back and ask whether this is all nerd porn or a tempest in a teapot, I mean, podcast ads are still pretty <laughs> small, right? I mean, it's a billion dollars or so of podcast advertising revenue globally, maybe a billion and a half, and radio is is twenty billion or more, and the entire digital advertising market as a whole is six hundred billion. Isn't this a, a kind of a navel-gazing exercise for the people who are deep in the weeds? And does it really matter that much to the economics of giants like, like YouTube, for example, how this podcast advertising market develops?
3: Yeah, I think YouTube can survive with or without podcasts. And I, I just should actually pick up on this a bit more depth. We'll come back to adverts in a second. But The YouTube question is fascinating, and it has fascinated me for five years now, which is the yacht industry is YouTube a key podcast platform? They diminish it as, no, YouTube isn't podcast. When you ask a consumer, what's your favorite podcast platform? They all say YouTube. And that disparity, that divergence in thought has always Mm. puzzled me. And then uh, another big debate this week was about, should podcasts be visual or do they no longer Mm. become a podcast? We can pick that up. Back to your point of advertising. I, I love your cynicism when it comes to markets, Richard. And I did kind of maybe have a, bred into that as soon as was myself at the conference when they say it's a billion dollars or we're approaching two billion dollars and ad has been on podcasts yes that is chump change compared to other industries but I am beginning to wonder A how much of their advertising is carousel advertising podcast advertising themselves mm. and then B how much is actually being listened to given the podcast app player has got a 10 second skip button where you can just jump it intuitively That's- get through the pre weed adverts and get to the content itself so there could be some bubble trouble in what is a fairly small bubble of podcast advertising coming down the road.
0: Yeah. I mean, your point is well taken. And just as a reminder to our listeners, we're not doing bubble trouble because we have an economic imperative. It's not our day jobs. It's something we enjoy doing. It's a passion project, but the idea of trying to turn it into a business is something that for all, but the rarefied few is really out of reach. And there's a lot of reasons why people do podcasts and a lot of very successful ones. But it seems like it's a struggle to find a lot of great examples about podcasts that are commercially successful, as well as having the cultural impact or gathering the audience. Is that a fair statement?
3: Yeah. Well, let's turn to the one example that seems to have made it work. And I want to say the one example, I mean, I don't think there's a second or a third, literally, which is the Joe Rogan podcast. Mm. My understanding for Joe Rogan is that it can his audience can range between 3 and 15 million mm-hmm. for a, a small show, a trivial show. Maybe it's 3 or 4 million. For the big ones, Elon Musk, Smoking His Bliss, whatever, you're up into the 15s, maybe a little more. For the show that was canceled effectively, but it's still up there, I'd imagine that would have tapped 20 million plus just through the negative publicity. After all, there is no such thing as bad publicity. But what I found fascinating is, if he's the number one podcast on the planet, how big is number two? So the gap between gold and silver, I mean, we're off a cliff here. So we talk right. about podcasts being a big business, and Joe Rogan's a big podcast. Well, I took a place of honor, and I want to thank our producer, Eric Newsom, here, because I had four people on stage quote my expression, podcasts are a sea of niches. Now, he said this in a Times interview. I think I stole it off Eric Newton's producer. Don't cut the cord on this podcast, please. But I think it's fascinating to think about podcasts are not a typical media market. They are not hit-heavy, skinny tail distribution like everything else, games, TV, music, film. They're a sea of niches. Hmm. And there's one big blockbuster and everything else literally is a niche. And they can be big niches, they can be small niches, but they are not mainstream events. They're intimate, closed group events. And that Throws up a ton of questions about how does this market play out?
0: But you're, as an economist, someone who has looked at this issue of the long tail and of distribution of income Mm -hmm. and how in so many fields, the spoils go disproportionately to those at the top of the tree. How does podcasting break through this sea of niches and find audiences that may be scattered all along that long tail? Because there may be dozens of podcasts about finance and business or entrepreneurship or true crime or what have you, but each of them has a relatively small audience. And how do you aggregate those into groups of interest that are large enough to be relevant to more than the handful of advertisers we know are super active on podcasts?
3: Yeah, so Richard, if we think about a long tail market here, what I'm seeing is that on a podcast platform like Spotify admittedly, we're talking about a glass half rule because you've got Apple's podcast platform on the other side, but we stick with Spotify. The Joe Rogan podcast is so far out in front of the rest of the packets. It's it's striking for me. Rogan's audience on a bad day, maybe it's 3 million for a small trivial show. On a big show, it could be up in the 15, 16 million marks. Fine, it it bubbles along, but these are huge numbers for one show. And it's a lot of creator hours. If you think about two, three shows a week, each lasting three hours long. He's getting more creator hours than any other artist on Spotify. But what's staggering when we go back to this long tail discussion is the next best show probably barely breaks a million. So the gulf between gold and silver is so wide. And I think this is a microcosm of how this market's going to play out. You know, that expression, sea of niches, I've kept on hearing being quoted at the conference. I really do think we're trying to get our heads around a media model that is truly long tail, that truly is going to be a sea of niches.
0: Thanks, Will. It's a fascinating way to round it up. And thinking about the music analogy, it's impossible to think that you'd have one artist, a Dua Lipa or a Drake or a Bad Bunny, that's up there in the three, four million, billion, sorry, streams on Spotify, that would be so far out in front of everybody else in the music industry, because the music industry has become so practiced at evolving these next gen talents, launching them into the market, and getting publicity for them. And it's fascinating looking at podcasting where you have, whether it's This American Life or the Daily from the New York Times or Joe Rogan, you have these kind of legacy catalog brands, the bands that we knew when we were kids, whether it's a David Bowie or a Fleetwood Mac or a Bruce Springsteen or a Prince, that still have the staying power as podcast brands and they haven't been knocked off the perch. And the there doesn't yet seem to be the industrialization of the process of refreshing that base of podcast titles that brings through new talent and grows them into stardom. And maybe that's what we want to get into in the second half what models have worked to create stars in podcasting and what's going to come next, whether it's video, comments, chapters, and how podcasting might evolve to open up to new audiences. With that, we'll come back for part two, Will Page's views on the podcast show. And this is Bubble Trouble. Back in a moment. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble. Will Page's views from the epic podcast show in London, this emerging new medium that is yet to kind of find its footing as a commercial enterprise. Now, Will, we do like to lay out these inconvenient truths about how tech and financial markets really work. And here you have this genius new medium that's, well, it's actually 20 years old now, but (laughs) coming to its own through the pandemic. And everybody saw it as a road to riches. But tell us what are the emerging business models because we had plenty of bubble trouble podcasts where we dissected the creator economy and decided that we weren't going to be walking down the street throwing a tenor in every direction to every substack journalist or podcaster that we thought did something clever just that sort of creator economy never panned out to be the the road to riches for all those individual creators did it
3: no, you kind of just pulled it up. You called it a new medium in front of Eric Newsom, who is producing podcasts. Our producer back when the iPod was the main format of distribution. A bit of a full it's part, of It's relative. Well, it's relative.
0: Will, relative. <laughs> TV was in the came from the '20s, and radio was even before that.
3: Yeah, so I mean, let's recap on what we've got to. We know that podcasts are not in the head like music has achieved. We know that a vast chunk of them are not making any money, and we know that in the advertising world. There's some hocus-pocus figures going on there too in terms of how much of the advertising was carousel advertising, that is advertising to yourself, and how much of that advertising was skipped, and the cost of selling those adverts, which is rarely discussed as well. So if you want to flip it from advertising, what's your other option? What's your plan B? It's subscription. Now let's just remind ourselves about when we've discussed the newspaper industry and we've got a whole chapter on Bubble Trouble about free press, that when you pay for adverts on Spotify, it's a deterrent. I hate those adverts and I want to use them as a way of making you convert to premium. And once you're on premium, you get rid of the ads. Whereas in newspapers and magazines, you pay for a newspaper magazine, you're going to get adverts. You subscribe to that newspaper magazine, you're probably going to get even more adverts. They're no longer the deterrent. So the path that podcasts seem to have picked is to turn down the music avenue of adverts are deterrent and you pay to get rid of them. Very few people have made subscription work. But I did find one, which is two film review critics, well-known on these shores, called Simon Kermode, Simon Mayo and Mark Commode. Mm. it's called Extra Take, or Second Take. And the podcast is produced by Something Else Productions, veterans of the podcast business, now owned by Sony Music. Not Sony Core, but Sony Music. Dennis Cooker and the team have got skin in the game here. And they seem to have cracked it. My understanding is he seems to have cracked it with six-figure numbers of people paying to the tune of three ninety-nine, four ninety-nine a month to listen to these guys give their reviews of films. Richie, there is something happening here, and what I want to get into in the second half of this part is the reasons why. They did our before the podcast show kicked into full effect on the Wednesday. They did our preview at the Union Chapel on the Tuesday, not just sold out. Interesting, no advertising not just that they create the podcast live on the stage, which means the cost of content creation now becomes a revenue stream. Think about it. You're paying to come and see me create content, which then goes out to my audience to which I can advertise against or subscribe against. But they they have got serious numbers paying not just for the show, but for merchandise. Mm -hmm. Just like you said in part one, the sort of, pop star phenomenon, it's not just about the track on Spotify, it's what else you can sell around it. I'm trying to figure out why, and I have this thesis I want to run past you, Professor Kramer, which is, I think it's about de-risking a situation. Let's say you're going to go on a date, okay? And you don't go on dates that often, but in this case, you're going to go on a date, you could go to a show, you could go for a walk, you could go to the movies. Let's say you pick the movies. What is the risk of that movie being a dud film, And that then becoming a bad date and nothing happening thereafter. That's a big risk and you can't afford that risk. So you're willing to pay money on top to avoid the chance of a movie being a dud. In fact, you're willing to, and follow me here, you're willing to pay more for the curation, Mark Kermode and Simon Meal telling you what to see and what not to see and the reasons why, than you are for the actual content. That is, the annual cost of their podcast subscription exceeds the cost of two or three cinema tickets. What happens when curation is worth more than content, Richard?
0: Well, I would say Kermode and Mayo have tapped into the ocean of cinephiles who may have a morbid fascination with the dozens of awful movies that are produced every year, but just want to engage with someone who has a thoughtful, considered opinion, a takedown, or effusive praise of those films, And I don't necessarily see it as a risk mitigation for your hot date and you don't want it to be a dud watching the latest installment of the Fast and Furious franchise or the latest Marvel franchise uh, installment. But I see it instead as tapping into one of those fan bases which isn't a niche. It's actually quite large. And I don't know how many of Kermode and Mayo's listeners come from outside the UK where they have their roots as film reviewers. But to the extent that you can capture that cinephile audience globally, that's what Rogan manages to do, right? He doesn't just capture the US conspiracy theorists or crazies that love to listen to him rant on about things, but he captures large audiences in many other markets and even in non-English-speaking markets. So I think it's, rather than look at it as, geez, this is a way I'm going to make sure my data isn't a bomb, I'd look at it as, where are the niches that enough people populate that they would want to pay to listen to very high-quality entertainment? And I'm sure our producer, Eric, can chime in because there was a very famous show that I wouldn't be surprised if he had a part in, on NPR for the longest time called Car Talk. And it was, it's similar to Gardner's Question Time on the BBC, where you find a very large audience of people who passionately care about gardening or cars or cinema, and they're willing to pay to get an expert's dissection, digression, disquisition, whatever next D word I can come up with, debate over these fascinating topics, the insider baseball of that segment of the market.
3: Yeah, this is making me think, thinking aloud here. I do think there is a role for de-risking, but I think you've maybe tapped on something even greater. It's like sort of peer pressure work of quality, not quantity. Let's say for the sake of round numbers, there's 100,000 people listening to the Komodo Mayo Cinema Review podcast and paying for the rights to do so. And let's say for the sake of round right numbers, there's a million cinema goers in this country, probably a few more, but let's just put it as a million. Those 100,000 in their social networks would be the one in 10 people in a group whose film review you'd appreciate. So I don't mm. want to go to the movies, but my mate, Rich Kramer, he really knows movies. And he said, I go, should go and see this one. So I'm going to trust his word. Mm. And it's Rich Kramer who's paying for Komodo Mayo. It's not me, but I'm a benefactor of him listening into that show. So, it might be that same. And when you say Gardner's Question Time, which to stress is the longest running piece of audio content Absolutely. in this country, phenomenally successful. I'm not interested in listening to it, but if I've got a friend who does, I'm going to ask that friend for advice about what to do with my peonies. And it's that type of peer pressure, that type of word of mouth network effect, which means Komodo Mayo's audience might only be 100,000, but they're affecting way more than just 100,000. If they say a film was a dud, 100,000 people are going to say to their 10 friends each, oh, I heard a komodo Mail review of this film and it's a really bad film. And that way you've amplified the effect out. So I think there's this network amplification thing that could be going on with it too. But to stress, 4 million podcasts on platforms, maybe 5 million now, just one seems to have got a subscription to work. And there's two very well-known, highly regarded film reviewers based here in London. So it's an incredible success story. I'm not saying it's transferable, but we've got to learn from it.
0: Yeah, and let us not dismiss, for example, The Rest is Politics from Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, which has garnered a large audience and has, from what we understand, substantial advertising income, or the Americas podcast with Emily Maitlis, or the other ones that are coming through that haven't chosen subscription to monetize, or... Maybe they don't have the opportunity to develop all the incremental additional content that -hmm. would justify a subscription on top of the base offering. And certainly, we've talked before in many other media about the trade-off between going behind a paywall and limiting your reach, limiting your influence, and making something available to everyone maximizing that reach and influence but minimizing the opportunity for that incremental subscription income and, and i'm sure you'll see plenty of other podcasters make an effort to replicate kermode and mayo and maybe some will be successful because they've shown that maybe four dollars a month is the magic price it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like such a commitment to make ten dollars and it's compared to a cinema ticket of 12 or 15 four pounds doesn't seem like a lot
3: I, and you know what they're doing now and you've got to- Pick your subject matter carefully when you look at business models. This is film review. So when you pay, you get watch-alongs. So you can time your podcast with the start of a movie and watch it with Komodo Mayo talking in your ear as you're enjoying a film. I mean, that's pretty cool innovation, actually. It sounds a little bit freaky at first, but...
0: Or extremely irritating if you think of that person in the behind you in the cinema who just can't stop whispering about how shit the film is when you're actually enjoying
3: <laughs> it. <laughs> Well, at least you can't see their mobile phone flash up on a podcast. But no, it's interesting to think about that as a deviation for what they can put in the first class carriage that premium tier offering is to offer a watch log. I watched a movie, didn't quite get my head around the plot, which is typical for me. I'm very slow in the uptake when it comes to movies. But if I could watch it again with an expert, that's worth a five or a month. Yeah, And I think
0: there, there are many other examples, whether it's Radiolab did this brilliantly or... My neighbor, Gary Kemp, who's got a podcast called Rock on Tours, and they timed with the podcast show, had an event at the Screen on the Green in Islington where Gary had gone 30 years ago to see the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. And they timed that event to bring members from the Sex Pistols and the Clash onto the stage to discuss their work, which is what the podcast wow. does. So there are these spin-off events which tap into the audience and... From what he told me, it was sold out. So when you find opportunities to re-engage the audience, I think the audience is keen for it. And maybe let's move on to one other thing that that we wanted to touch on before we get to Smoke Signals, which is what's next to come? You mentioned YouTube and people don't Mm -hmm. think of it as a podcast destination, but certainly we'd be mortified to think that our listeners want to actually watch us as they listen along. (laughs) What else is coming in podcast content to make it more like audiobooks, more like, more immersive, to, to add the extra layers of content that might spark the subscriptions and the extra income for podcasters.
3: Yeah, we got a great face for radio, right? <laughs> yeah, so the video one's a big one. And there's it, a great discussion with Ross Adams from ACAST, who we're now going in with, and Russell Tovey, the actor from years and years, about their Talk Art podcast. Mm. And talking there, I have raised my hand and asked the question, which is, you've got this incredible podcast, you're doing great numbers, you're able to speak to Pierce Brosnan for 40, 50, 60 minutes about his love of art, not his role as a Bond movie, not his role with Mamma Mia, but your love of art. Tell me what makes you love art. And I raised the question, which is, this is an audio content podcast about celebrities' love of art and nothing else, but art as a visual format. Would you go to video? And he spent about Eight minutes answering my question, and he concluded by saying, hmm. Oh, no, because of video, all the hangouts for production, angles, light, appearances, it's just me and Pierce Brosnan, two microphones, and off we go and that's whats that's the magic is I'm asking you to imagine in your head that love of art, not to be bombarding with visual content to make you love his art so it was interesting to see there was sort of a loyalist to the audio format only community there, and there was other people saying. The sooner we get to video, the better we can pump up our ad rates. So you've got a bit of a division happening there. Two two other quick ones. I think chapters are going to be interesting. I'll give you a quick example. Financial Times, friend of the show, guest of the show, big supporters of this show. I'd like to say to them, if you could do the FT Weekend as a podcast broken into chapters, that might just work. Stephanie Priest from New York Times, you're listening. Same for you guys as well newspaper podcasts broken into chapters are a very different thing from newspaper podcasts without chapters. I mm. want to hear some money sections. I want to hear some art sections and give me some film reviews and I'm off, but don't mm. ask me to stick around for a full 45 minutes. And then I think the last thing is comments, not much movement on the tech side from Apple and Spotify on comments. I know people are trying to work on it. It's not going to be easy. The RSS feed and integration of comments like YouTube's got comments. But it's it's really interesting to hear the podcast presenters of the show, like Gabby Logan, talking about how important feedback was to how she formats her show, The Midpoint, and then thinking, well, what if she had comments on that show so she could see at scale what her audience have to say while listening to that person going through a midlife crisis? So it's interesting to think about. Currently, we're a glass half full. We've got two people in a microphone having a conversation. To fill that glass, we want the 200,000 people listening to that podcast to be engaging in that conversation. And just wrapping up on that one, can I just give you a quick insight from YouTube? Please. So I've noticed in the past two years or so, I'm addicted to reading YouTube comments on anything, mm. on a piece of football content, on our watching our Milton Friedman speech from the 70s, or listening to music. And it's like, comments are great. But around about two years ago, YouTube did this transformation to comments where they ripped out any vulgar or profane or abusive language. Like, cry free speech if you want, it's their platform, it's their rules. But what their goal is to make comments enjoyable to read. Isn't that crazy? They just slipped that through the net and their comments are great to read because all the profane stuff and vulgar stuff and gotcha stuff and trolling, that's all been swept from under the carpet. So it's amazing when you make comments nice to read, how much value they have. And just to wrap that point up in my book, I quote Yeba, the artist Yeba, Abby spelled backwards. She said, I value the comments on YouTube more than the royalties from Spotify. Like what matters most, Richie?
0: Well, I wholeheartedly agree in that I find the comments below the article in the FT are absolutely priceless and brilliant. And there are some genius, thoughtful reactions to articles, which become a meta critique in the same way that this show is a metacritique about what we're doing ourselves and about whether there's a commercial end point to it. With that, I think we need to get to Smoke Signals, the uh-oh moments that we have all this hype and hysteria of bubble trouble. We're overhearing things at the podcast show that just make you shake your head and say it's not going to work out that way. There is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which you can't even really see. So what What kind of things did you hear with these 6,000 people enjoying the lovely spring weather in London that made you just cringe?
3: Double counting audience figures. Number one, it's an epidemic. I've heard countless people boast about their podcast numbers to me, and you only have to probe ever so slightly to realise the numbers aren't what they're actually claiming. This really belongs in a full episode of More or Less, the podcast... So I'll pitch it to Tim Hartford, which is, Luke, the question is, how many unique people with pulses are you reaching with your podcast? And if you're telling me that you're doing 22 shows a month and you're getting 34,000 unique people with pulses, the answer is not three quarters of a million people. Just repeat the mess there. 22 times 34,000 people does not get you to three quarters of a million unique people. And this is my challenge, is when everybody says, oh, my podcast is doing great numbers, frequency, how many shows are you doing? And double counting is driving, for a large part, those great numbers. And I'm, What really worries me is those data scientists were making this mistake at the conference, not just to presenters. I know really big podcasters who are claiming they're doing these huge six-figure sums. I'm like, you're not. Basically, you're doing 40,000 and you're doing a ton of output every month. That's what's getting you to these huge numbers. On top of just double counting, let's remember, you've also got automatic downloads without a listen, bit of an issue. And then you've got click fraud, that is scandals that Ashley Carvin, friend of the show, has been exposing on Bloomberg, people using gaming companies to drive up their podcast numbers as well. But I just, I think it's got to the point for me, which is whenever somebody says, my podcast gets to this many people, remove a zero. I think that's a good rule of thumb to get closer to that thing we call a truth. I get to six hundred thousand people of my show. It's probably closest to sixty and there's double counting, click forward, and unlisten to downloads in that mix as well. Mm. I really think that's an issue. I get to stress the experts were making that mistake and when I probed them on it, the mistake was exposed. So again it's And how much of
0: that how much of that is Emperor's new clothes? Because no one wants to admit that they are actually narrow casting to a tiny niche audience. Everyone wants to think they have cultural cachet and millions of people are flocking to hear what they've got to say.
3: I know, it's like you don't want to stand out from the crowd. So if my neighbors cooking their books, well, I should cook my books as well so we can all cook our books together. But mm. I think the advertisers, the media buyers, who can be absolutely ruthless here, if they start pressing in and saying, oi, come in number 13, your time is up. How many unique people with a pulse are yeah. actually reaching your podcast and this is just listens listening through to the end not to yeah. repeat the oldest joke in bubble trouble but the listen through metric as well as missing too so it's really messy and when i heard things like james cridlin was saying we're really excited we've got charts coming and it's based off survey samples no i think the media planners That's if they're going to believe in this format we need something far more granular and far more accurate and a whole lot less cooking of books of audience figures whatever your friends or podcasters say about the audience, chop a zero off and I promise you'll be a lot closer to the truth.
0: Great. So let's get one more. I mean, I always think of podcasts as one of these classic examples in tech of extrapolating Educated upper middle class behavior to the mass market, and maybe I'm wrong about the demographics of that. I don't know. Maybe it works differently for Bill Stimmons in the Ringer or sports categories. But to, um, to impress
3: friends at dinner parties, that's why. No, no such thing and, as a and, fish was the purpose of no such thing a fish with dinner parties.
0: I don't go. I don't go on the terraces at Millwall to just to hear how many people <laughs> there survey how many people there are listening to podcasts many times a week. But tell me one more uh oh moment that you came away from this obviously celebration of the business of podcasting we had in London and said, hang on, this just isn't going to save anyone's bacon.
3: Well, Abraham Lincoln once said, if I've got two people in a meeting who both share the same opinion, I've got one one person too many at my meeting. And so many people at that conference were evangelical about the RSS feed and podcast being an open distribution platform. But you, I think the contrarian in me was to say, let's call this out, which is... Hold on a second. The platform, the Spotifys, the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples, are spending a ton of money developing their proposition. If it's the RSS feed model, it's open. They don't really get that much skin in the game of the content that's going through. So if you go back to that rumored decision that YouTube were going to say, yep, you can distribute a podcast here, but I'm going to do your advertising, that's saying, well, sender pays data, baby. (laughs) You remember Andrew Budd's famous... Description of the telco market. What did he say? He said he referred to Roland Hill at the Royal Mail, who in eighteen fifty one changed the model from receiver pays to sender pays. Used to pay to receive your post, and then he flipped it around and said, "No, you're going to pay to send your post." And the network effects built the Royal Mail that we have today. And it's just like who pays, which is you're getting onto my platform with your adverts for free, and I see nothing of the upside. Oh no, now I want a bit of that upside, so. Either I'll take your adverts or I'll control the distribution. Now, I'm not saying which one is right or which one is wrong. That's to be thrashed out in the pages of Pod News, James Gridlin, friend of the show, and simply saying let's think about the perspective of the platform, hiring engineers, developers, UX designers to make that platform attractive, but to watch all the value just wash through their hands because the distribution format is completely open. I just think for balance, we should consider the view of the platform as well as the podcaster.
0: And with all those big beasts, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google and YouTube involved here, along with oodles of other leading media brands, is this just a great evidence of Bubble running into trouble? That they've all rushed into podcasting, it didn't turn out to be a road to riches for all of them, and there's a pullback happening.
3: Yeah, I think it is. But I think back to what we flashed out in part one, is... In the past hundred years of having a media format that we know and love, everything has fallen into a hit-heavy, skinny-tail distribution. My favorite example is films. I remember speaking to a Hollywood executive who said, I set the marketing budget for a new Will Smith movie so that one in three Americans know there's a new Will Smith movie. No figure, no ceiling, just spend what you can to the point where a third of America knows there's a new Will Smith movie. Then I've got a blockbuster hit and I'm putting my kids through college. And it's one in four, I got a flop, back in debt that's how media has worked and we've had that ingrained into us but if we are genuinely dealing with a new media format that a soaks up a ton of time because we're asking for 45 minutes not four and a half minutes like a song and that could be 45 minutes two or three times a week which is longer than an average movie so we're winning in time but it is a sea of niches we don't have those hits then we're back to the drawing board Shake that hangover of the past five years of hype and hysteria about podcasting. Go back to basics. And A shout out to Cal Amin from the company Sounder FM, listener of the show, because he's looking at programmatic advertising for podcasting, which is, hold on to this for a second, I need a way of reducing the marginal cost of getting ads to the ears because I'm dealing with a sea issues. I don't have that scale economy effect that the blockbusters used to give me so i got to reduce the cost of getting the ads out, and that leads into programmatic solutions. That ain't going to be easy, but it's very interesting to start thinking through, how do you serve a sea of niches? That's the question we're going to try and ask.
0: Well, it's been a fascinating roundup of what Will Page learned at the podcast show, a medium that may be a revolutionary one in the future, but still remains, as Will says, a sea of niches, and for a lot of folks, not the Road to Riches to Make a Living. Happily for our producer, Eric Nozom, he has plenty of fantastic hit podcasts that he's working on, but he's one of the OGs of the industry and one of the rare few that I think can sit back watching us record and still smile about the <laughs> economics of this industry. With that, it's been another fascinating episode of Bubble Trouble. We'll be back next week with myself and Will Page. Thanks for listening.
3: If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Hi, everyone. The Other Hand is the go-to podcast for anyone interested in UK and Irish business, finance, economics and politics. Chris and Jim take the issues of the day and discuss in ways that traditional media fear to tread. Jargon-free analysis and more than a little opinion have taken our podcast to top of the most listened charts. We'd be delighted if you could join the conversation.